Welcome to the Friday Q&A. I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and here I'm going to try and do my best to give you guys the biblical answer to your questions, um, or at least to point you in a good direction. Even if I don't know something, <clears throat> you know me, I'm just going to tell you I don't know, um, which, which is odd that people find that impressive. It's kind of a sad commentary <laughs> that, that they're like, he says when he doesn't know things, that's kind of a sad commentary on the world today. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, there are some things I know, and I'd like to try to talk about some of those things and hopefully, um, you know, bring benefit into your life. The first question we're dealing with today is this from Tinkerbell Bear. As you guys load your questions, and we're going to take just 20, so I forget, forgive me for those who we cannot get to all the questions. We do the best we can. Um, but the first question, Tinkerbell Bear says, the New Testament has a lot of examples of demons being very active. It sure does. And Jesus and the apostles had to cast many demons out of people. There was a lot of activity and possession. But in the Old Testament, demonic activity and possession is not talked about at all or very, very rarely. I was wondering what happened to cause the change and huge increase or why we rarely read about it in the Old Testament. But there are so many examples in the New Testament. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Well, you're, you're welcome for my time. Thanks for your time. Um, we're going to look at a few specific things. Uh, the first question I'll ask is like, is there demon possession? Is, the, is, that, is that like a thing in the Old Testament? And probably the best example of it is, or the closest example, you said it, if it talks about it, it's really, well, probably the closest example is 1 Samuel chapter 16. At least I think this is probably the best uh, place we could go. And this is where King Saul, right? King Saul, he's the king of Israel at the time. And then David, he's going to be the future king. Saul is, is really doing a bad job. And God is going to remove the blessing and the anointing on Saul to be king. And he's going to replace him with David. And because of Saul's bad behavior, it says here in uh, 1 Samuel 16, 14, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Now, the reason why the spirit of the Lord was on Saul was so that Saul could be king. So he could rule as the anointed king of Israel. Remember, Israel's not just any nation. This is where God is ruling. And so when he, he initially brought a king, he gave him the Holy Spirit. He also did this with David, anointed as king with the spirit. But the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now here, there's already going to be some debate. Like, is this harmful spirit is it is it a bad like evil spirit like a demon type thing or is it just a spirit that causes harm and so like the ESV is going to say harmful spirit the new american standard is going to say an evil spirit with a footnote and uh, let me see what the footnote says oh it's just a reference to other passages um so their footnote doesn't doesn't give you that there's an alternate translation here the new king james version in the same spot is going to call it a distressing spirit so what does that tell you if you don't know if you don't know Hebrew like most of us? It it tells you that there, there's a debate on this, right? There's there's a difference between these translations because the same word harmful, it could mean it's a bad evil spirit or it could mean it's it's just causing harm. The fact that it's from the Lord would cause some people to think it's just a, a, it's a good spirit who's just causing him harm. Um, others would think, no, God is so sovereign, and I would agree with this in principle, God is sovereign in that he can allow an evil spirit to come and it might be evil spirit. Just like Job, you know, with Job, God allowed Satan to attack him. That doesn't make Satan good. Um, now, what happens next is they say, hey, uh, Saul's servant said to him, behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the liar. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. 
Then they find David, they bring him in. And the last verse I'll quote for this question, at least, yeah, I guess it'll probably be the last verse, is, um, is verse 23, where it says, and whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Now, this is interesting. There's something with David, right, where he plays music and the harmful spirit departs from Saul. Now, when we couple this, let me build a case that this may have been something similar to like an exorcism or at least dealing with a, a demonic attack happening to somebody. David is the psalmist of Israel. He doesn't just play any any music or any songs. He plays songs that are that are worshipful, songs that are anointed, songs that God inspired. And we find out that even later on, people took some of the Psalms of David. We read about this in the Qumran, uh, the Qumran text. I won't get into all that, but basically people after this time did look at some of the Psalms as being related to exorcisms. And they would play those songs in relation to exorcisms. Psalm 91 is an example of that. And the whole idea of treading on serpents in that Psalm, you will tread on serpents, it, that there may be like a spiritual connotation that's going on there. Perhaps... This gives more credence to the idea that this is like an exorcism happening in the Old Testament. There's definitely spiritual battles. There's spiritual entities. There's definitely demons in, in the Old Testament, in my view here. Um, Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17, it says that those who in Israel were sacrificing to idols and false gods, that they were really sacrificing to demons, right? That's what we read about then in the New Testament as well, that behind idols are demons. So it's the same theology, old here and new. But then we're left with another question. Why then? Okay, so in other words, all I'm going to suggest so far is uh, in the Old Testament, the idea of demonic uh, oppression of, of some kind and then exorcism of some kind, it seems to be there at least hinted at, suggested in this passage. At least I think so. Maybe I'm wrong. And then the concept of demons, the very idea of demonic things, evil spirits, that sort of thing, and them, them being behind false religions and false beliefs, that's in the Old Testament for sure. Then in the New Testament, we have a question, why is it that there's just so much more, right? Because the quantity cannot even be compared. Even if there were like lots of exorcisms in the Old Testament, it'd be, you know, in the Old Testament times, it would be hard to imagine there were as many as there are in the first century in Jesus's day. Right? Because they're just not really talked about. They're not really the focus of things. And so this is this is pretty um, pretty bold, the difference. And I think as Christians, what we should think is, this is intentional. We, we should think, yes, that's because there simply were never this number of exorcisms until the first century, until the time of Jesus. This is an anomaly. And even since then, there, we don't generally, as Christians, walk around seeing this much demonic possession going on as, as they did in the very beginning in the first century. So why is that? Well, there's a few interesting answers to that question. One of them would be that um, demonic uh, possession and overcoming demons is seen as a, as, as a messianic identity thing. It's seen as confirmation to the Jews that this is in fact the Messiah. So this is significant because God's using this sort of this uh, onslaught, this, you, you might say this battleground, you know, when, when an army gathers, right, when, when, let's say America and Canada decided they didn't like each other anymore, and the U.S. goes and sends forces up against the Canadian border oh, by, the Ni by Niagara Falls, and then what's Canada going to do? They're going to drop their forces on the other side of that same border, right? And this is, this is just a natural thing that happens when, when forces of one side arrive at a location forces from the other side come too. well jesus is the son of god they knew it and they arrive as well there's there's this intense demonic activity in the first century now that would be understandable satan's trying to 
oppress and counteract and come against what God is doing through through uh, Christ during this time. They know he's the son of God. They're, they don't know what he's doing. They don't know why he's there yet. Are you here to torture us before the time they ask him? They're confused, but they know who he is. So, so there's this like intense activity of Satan at the time. It makes sense. But there's a messianic element that is just really interesting, right? The, the fact that Jesus goes, and this is throughout the gospel of Mark, as we're doing our Mark series, I've, I pointed this out, especially early in Mark, Mark 4, you know, these early chapters in Mark, Jesus's victory over demons is a, is a loud megaphone to the people. This is the Messiah. This is the son of God. He, you know, cause he casts out demons and the crowd even goes, who is he? Who is he that he could just cast out demons with a word? There's no, there's nothing else going on. He just has such power. He can cast out demons. He, he encounters the demoniac at one point who has like, you know, countless demons inside of him and Jesus just commands them to go. Like that's all he has to command them to go. So he can command unlimited numbers of demons. He has so much power. So this is just to, to prop up his messianic identity. All that to say in the first century, I think we see a hub of incredible demonic activity and that we're... We're seeing that because of what's going on at the time. This is a major battleground. The battleground for all creation is happening right there in the first century. Jesus is is, is winning. And yeah, pretty interesting stuff. That, that would be my answer to your question. And we'll go now to some more questions on this Friday Q&A. As as there it is. As soon as I can find where I'm at. Um, Leslie uh, Fark... Oh boy, I'm going to mess up your last name. Farquharson? Farquharson? I don't know. Uh she asks this question, how can Jesus be fully God and fully man if he died? How can God die? I can understand him putting, si uh, putting aside some of his divinity in order to die, but don't we believe that he's both fully God and fully man? How can he be fully God at the crucifixion? Okay, this is, I love this question. Um, let me let me start with an assumption. Um, I'll affirm two assumptions. Okay, God like God, his, the nature, God's nature cannot die, right? He's, he is life. He just is life. He can't die. Okay. That I agree. Another assumption that I, I'm going to disagree with though, is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And before you throw stuff at me, <laughs> let me explain. I would use the term truly God, truly man, right? Now, when you say fully God, it's a little bit more of a sloppy term. Because I don't know if you mean, okay, here's all that Jesus is. If you mean all that Jesus is, is God. Well, then how could he also be man? Because man isn't the same thing as God. So if he's fully God, there's no room for him to be man. Or if you say Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, that's also sloppy terminology. I, I, I don't agree with that. And I don't say it out loud like that because I, I don't think it's the right way to explain who Jesus is. And the Bible doesn't use that terminology. Um, so 100% God and 100% man. Well, that doesn't make sense. 100% then then all he is is God. So again, he wouldn't be man. But if he's truly God and truly man, that's different. Now it's different. Now he can have two natures in one one person. Two natures, the nature of of being God but also of being man. Now when he died on the on the cross, his his God nature didn't die, his human nature died. And it's, and it's the very nature of who he is, which is why scripture says that death could not hold him. It was impossible for death to keep him. He would inevitably overcome death because of who he is as God. So his humanity explains his death. His deity explains his resurrection, if that makes sense. It, it, it forces him to come back to life, so to speak. I, I probably shouldn't use the term forces, but the scripture does say it's impossible 
uh, for him to stay dead. So yeah, when we say that Christ died on the cross, this is why he had to take on human form because God isn't going to go onto the cross, uh, manifest spiritually in some sense, and then die. That's not That doesn't make any sense. That's impossible. But if God comes, if he lays aside his glory, if he takes on human form, he's still God, but he has a human form now, he's truly man, then that man can die on the cross. But he is that, he, you know, takes on that form so he can die on the cross. His human nature died, his deity did not. Um, though you can't say his deity didn't suffer, his deity didn't suffer. Like that would be a separate his nature from his personhood in a weird way that I probably just confused everybody on. But there you go. There's the answer. Um, yeah, this is why Christ had to take on human form in order for him to die. And not only did he just take on human form so he could die, he took on human form so he could represent all humans. Just as Adam represents us all in the garden, he eats of the fruit and all of us fall with him. So Jesus, he he goes to a different tree. Adam eats of the fruit of the of the knowledge of good and evil, Jesus, he takes the experiences of good and evil that we've gone through and he takes it to the cross and hangs on the tree. The sentence they got was death. Jesus fulfills that sentence. The sentence they got was a crown or was uh, thorns, thorns go growing in the ground. God says to Adam and Jesus wears the crown of thorns. It was the labor and Jesus came to be a, a, a servant. So he fulfills all of the curse that is placed upon man by representing us all, by taking everything we've done upon our, uh, upon himself all the sin of all mankind, all the rebellion, everything just dumped upon Jesus Christ as he represents every one of us on the cross. Um, our gratitude could never be fully appropriate. We can never have enough gratefulness and gratitude for what Christ did for us. Question number three, JRQ says, or JR, sorry, JR has a question. There's, that's why the Q's there. Some pastors I respect live in huge homes in gated communities. Their salaries are higher than about 90% of their church members. Do you find anything wrong with this? Sort of. <laughs> okay. Um, it can be complicated because sometimes a pastor, though he is a pastor, he may have other things going on. Perhaps he came into the ministry, he already had money and he has investments or he has a business on the side. Okay. Um, but let's talk about a guy who his whole job is just ministry and all the salary he gets is just from the service in the church. Um, it seems to me that you don't want to overpay these guys. Um, and I think there's a few good reasons why you don't want to do that. Uh, one, it creates bad ulterior motives for wanting to be a pastor. So like you, you create, you put the bait out there. If, if your pastor gets paid $300,000 a year, then the bait is out there for people who don't even care about ministry to pursue that career because it pays so well. And, and that's not good. We don't want that temptation out there. So I don't think that that's healthy. I also think that it tends to, it tends to be a, a poor witness in the world. I think there are those who think, um, oh man, I'm living large and it proves that God's blessings are upon us and stuff. And I don't think that the world's yeah, I don't think that's a good witness to the world. So yeah, I, I have a problem with that. Um, but then th on the opposite side, and I've been more in my historic time doing ministry, I've been more on the lower pay scale of things. And there's plenty of times where we we couldn't afford something that maybe even people in our congregation could afford. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily healthy. I don't want to like, we should have our thumb down on our pastors and our leaders that they should have to be in poverty or something like that. So I think a, a nice rule, at least a wise rule, is that the pastor is is living around where the people are living, right? They has to live in the same community as them. So if you're a pastor and in your community, every home is a million dollars, then you should probably have a million dollar home because you're living in that community. That's that's 
that might seem like crazy amounts of money to somebody, but to me, that's like cost of living where you live. To, to somebody else, they might be living in a community where they don't need nearly as much. I think most pastors are probably underpaid. Statistically speaking, I'm, I'm, I'm going to guess. I know many pastors who are very much underpaid um, and struggle. And, um, and some pastors, they, they live on a parsonage, so that they live on a property that's owned by the church. The day they stop working for the church, they lose their home. And so then they, they're not being able to save for retirement, and it creates a lot of hard times for them. I would say generally, pastors probably should get a raise, but pastors that are making $500,000 a year, um, yeah, that seems very strange to me. And it seems to create ulterior motives for doing ministry, and I think it looks weird to the world. Um, those are my honest thoughts on that. Um, Kingsley Amaya says, my sister has decided to make a vision board and was asking me to follow. I did a bit of research and it looks like it ties with new age vision board. I've never heard of this. Um, could you explain how Christians should deal goals and dreams? Vision board. So it sounds like it's like something about uh, you write on a board, like these are my goals and my dreams. This is the vision I have. I, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The question is, what other baggage do you bring into that scenario as a Christian? And I think that the only stuff I can offer thoughts about this, because I don't know what a vision board is, and it sounds like it's a very specific kind of practice, where it's like step one, do this, step two, and I can't comment on that. I will comment on a few things. Um, having uh, desires and plans for the future is a good thing, and it's a healthy thing as a Christian. Um, it's one thing to say, um, I don't know what the future holds. God God does, and I'm just going to trust him. That's That's cool. But if by that, I mean, I'm not going to prepare for the future, I'm not going to try to have direction and goals and a five-year plan or a 10-year plan or retirement plan, that kind of thing. If I'm saying that, then I think I'm actually being irresponsible um, and I'm blaming it on God, right? Like I'm not irresponsible. God's going to provide. I once went out to lunch. This is a true story. I once went out to lunch with a group of Christians. All of us were in ministry. Not all at the same church. We were a, a thing. Anyway, we all go out and get lunch and it was pho. I don't know if you guys have ever had pho, Vietnamese pho, I don't know. I love some pho. Anyway, uh, or pho, if you want to call it that, whatever. We go out to eat, and he orders food, and he orders a drink. Now, I, I always get water when I go to eat places. Like, I just save money, right? Like, just get water. He orders a drink. He orders food. And then as the bill's getting passed around, he has no money. He's, like, not pulling his money out to pay. And I was like, hey, man, are you going to pay? And he goes, the Lord will provide. And, <laughs> and, I, and I remember going, He's going to provide through the tip that would have gone to the waitress. You know, this is how he's going to provide. Your, the cost of your food is going to be taken out of her tip. There was like 15 or so of us. And I just knew it was all going to get sucked right out of that person's tip. And so we, more of us chipped in and uh, we didn't really go out to eat with that guy after that. <laughs> Some of us do that in our lives. No plan, no agenda, no, no, no preparation. Now, it's one thing if God, if you know, the Lord's telling you do this. Just trust me, right? Like Abraham, go out to a place I'll show you, you go out, you trust him. But if God's not giving you that clear direction, you should have an agenda and a plan for the future. But another principle, that plan, that agenda should involve seeking first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and not my own. Meaning that it's driven by godly, holy concerns and cares and not my own selfishness, uh, pride, that sort of thing. But it is healthy if it connects with your giftings, if your plan is in, in line with the things that you're good at naturally. I think in general, when we I know I'm, I'm just giving you some advice here, okay? I'm not telling you what everybody has to do. But in general, when we're looking at our future, we often think, what would I enjoy the most? Um, or we think, what am I called to do? And I think that sometimes these are both problematic questions. So if you think, what do I enjoy the most? You, you, you pursue things that you may, you may be terrible at. 
Um, and if you, this is just reality, right? And if you say, what am I called to do? Then this presumes that you know a lot more about God's plan for your life than you might actually know. So you could just kind of be in limbo. I would say pursue things that are in your gift set. Look at your skills, look at what you're good at, look at what you're talented in, and then pursue that. Now that seems consistent in a biblical sense because God has given us different gifts and then we're supposed to operate in the gifts he gives us. And I would say that that also applies in a non-supernatural way to just things you're good at. Like, this is just the way God's wired me. This is what I'm skilled at. I should probably pursue that. I'm really good at this. I'm really good at that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look for careers and ministry opportunities and directions in my life that, that play to my strengths because that's how I can bring the greatest blessing to others. Um, so there's a couple things about our future. The, uh, oh yeah, Stephen Wilson has a question. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls the first disciples before healing Peter's mother-in-law. Heals her by touch. In Luke, they're called after she's healed by rebuking the fever. Is this significant? I would have to, uh, off the top of my head, Stephen, I don't recall and um, the details of these of the differences between here, Matthew and Mark. I would have to go and look at them and read them all carefully and then come up with an answer. So I'm apolog I apologize, I don't have it off the top of my head and it would take about 10 or 15 minutes of me just being silent while you just stared at my face to try to get your answer for you. So I apologize, Stephen, I'm not gonna be able to give you your answer right there. I would recommend, um, do, do some of your own research on this. Pull Matthew and Mark up, look at them thoughtfully, carefully, try to come up with a list of potential explanations for why it's done this way. And yeah, that's where I would begin. Yeah. Um, the invisible hand says, what's your view of second Timothy two, 20 through 21 saying people can cleanse themselves and using the same honorable versus dishonorable wording as Romans nine, does this refute the Calvinist view of total depravity? Okay. Let's look at these passages. So second Timothy, I think it was second Timothy two twenty. It says, now in a great house, now the vessels, I'll just spoil it for you guys, the vessels, this refers to us. We're the vessels. And the great house is, is ultimately the church. Um, and so we're the vessels. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Now back then, clay vessels were actually disposable. So they would often just toss clay pottery out after they used it. Oh, the clay has been used up. I'll just throw it out the window. And even now, archaeologists, like they look for clay, bits of clay all over the ground. It's one of the most common things they find as they're digging in cities in the ancient Near East. And they'll find clay and they'll use the clay to identify what year it was or approximately what year it was based upon the style of clay that they use. Um, anyway, so yeah, clay is disposable. Wood, these are considered not special, right? Gold and silver are considered special. So translation, some of us... We could be like gold and silver, some of us like wood and clay, depending on our conduct. Some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Now, this relates to gold and silver would be for food and things like that. Wood and clay might be for unclean items. You might put an unclean item, right? Something that was ceremonially unclean in the clay pot because you're just going to chuck the clay pot afterwards. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, now it's talking about sin. He will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, to apply it, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. The stuff people joke about doing when they're in college, this is the stuff we're supposed to flee. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
these are, then it gives us more, more of a list of ways we can be a good servant of the Lord. Um, <clears throat> now, this is obviously is something you can cleanse yourself of these things according to this. Now, but what does cleanse yourself in this passage mean? Cleanse yourself here means you change your behavior so that you can be used for greater things. It doesn't mean you get forgiveness for yourself or something like that. All right. Now, the question you have is, is this connected to Romans 9? Because there's similar language here. And Romans 9 is, of course, a great um, Calvinist proof text that talks about, in their view, total depravity. And let me find um, in Romans 9 where we get the uh, exact verse. I might have some trouble finding it off the top here. Okay, here we go. Um, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? What is uh, molded? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make, to known, make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the vessels of to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Um, so I would just suggest that in what, um, let me let me read your question again, make sure I'm not going to get off base here. Stephen Wilson says, I'm sorry, uh, I, I skipped up ahead there. In uh, the invisible hand says, what's your view of 2 Timothy 2, 20, 21? Saying people can cleanse themselves. I explained my view there is this is about your conduct and your behavior in life being being uh, God-honoring so that you can be useful to the Lord for ministry. That's it. Um, if you're compromised in your life, you're not going to be as useful to serve God in ministry. Um, whether it, And I don't mean on staff in a church. I just mean serving God in your life to bless people around you. Um, and it uses the same wording, honorable versus dishonorable, in Romans 9. Does this refute the Calvinist view of total depravity? Um, okay. Here's how I understand the math of your question at this point. If I can cleanse myself in 2 Timothy, then why can't a vessel of wrath cleanse their selves? I think that the problem here is that 2 Timothy is talking about Christ-like conduct among Christians because he's saying all of us could be honorable or dishonorable in that context. Whereas honorable, dishonorable in Romans 9 at that point is speaking of salvation. Like here, every Christian is honor, an honorable vessel, a vessel for honorable use. Whereas in 2 Timothy, not every Christian is because we're mixing analogies. We're like looking at a, 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 an analogy used in two different ways in two different contexts. So I would not try to merge the two passages together. Although I do think total depravity is an incorrect doctrine. I have talked about that in other places. You guys can check it out. Just look up Mike Winger, Total Depravity. But I wouldn't use this to say that because to me, Romans 9 is about salvation. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21 is about Christians who are um, being sanctified so that they could be of greater use to the Lord. Katie has a question. What shall we do when confused on doctrine? I've seen your videos on Catholicism, but recently had a debate with a Catholic and feel so confused. My faith is shaken and I don't know what to believe. All right, Katie, first off, I'm sorry. It is unpleasant in the extreme to be in the place of being utterly confused about what you're supposed to believe. Let me tell you this. One of the things that you'll be tempted to do when you're confused, and I would say this to everybody, is you, you make bad decisions, right? I don't know what to believe. So then you start making decisions about what to believe. 
while you're confused. These are not the best decisions you can make. One thing I would ask you, Katie, if me and you were able to sit down and have a one-on-one conversation is I would ask you, and I would like even write it down if I could, I'd be like, what are the specific things that Katie has unresolved about whether she should be Catholic or non-Catholic? You know, and I would write them out and you're like, well, you have a question about Sola Scriptura and then I would want to chase that down. I'd say, okay, it's about Sola Scriptura. How do you define Sola Scriptura? If you talk to a Catholic, there's a good chance you don't understand Sola Scriptura anymore. <laughs> I'm just speaking from experience. They usually attack something other than Sola Scriptura. And so then you're trying to defend something we're not really believing. And then the whole thing ends up being, you're confused because Sola Scriptura just means that the Bible has authority over all the other authorities. Doesn't mean there are no other authorities. And, um, and that's usually misrepresented um, when debating uh, Catholic. Um, so maybe you're confused on something else related to justification because a Catholic will often, and I'm just being honest with you guys, when I talk to Catholic apologists, see them online, they often will confuse initial justification with final justification. And they'll talk to a, 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 a non-Catholic about initial justification as if that's the whole story. Oh, we're initially saved by grace and it's purely unmerited. And then they're like, wait, I thought you Catholics believed it was works. Oh, no, we don't. And they're just totally being misleading here. The whole beef all along has been their doctrine of final justification. That's the beef. That's what it's always been. So why are we talking about initial? Um, and it creates a lot of confusion. So Katie, my encouragement to you is don't be confused. Write down your specific issues. If you can't if you can't name them, if you can't write them down, here's the areas I'm confused on and give them numbers. Number one, number two, number three, then you shouldn't make any decisions right now. You should just slow down. Um, try to get answers to those specific questions. And one of the things I've seen people do is I've seen people not get answers to their questions. They feel confused and they start asking weird questions. I'm not kidding here. Like, well, Catholic churches really are beautiful. Maybe Catholicism is true because it's beautiful. Catholic churches are beautiful. And I'm like, well, then be Mormon. Because have you seen the Mormon tabernacles? They're, the, the temples are just beautiful. They're gorgeous. right? Jesus talks about the beauty of the Pharisees. But it's not in a positive way. So these are not good ways to come up with your theology. I really like the liturgy. I really enjoy the liturgy. Okay, but this is not like a good way to, to, to look at the truthfulness of a theology. Right? This is this is like saying, I loved the Pharisees, how, how broad their phylacteries are and how they elongate their tassels and how they have these expansive prayers. The liturgy of the Pharisees is beautiful. It's just like it's irrelevant to the theology being right. I would I would avoid going down those roads as well, Katie. So God God bless you. God give you wisdom. I do have lots of teaching on it. My most recent video on Catholicism, um, where it's like two hours on Catholicism, I, I think that would be the one I'd point you to the most. I'd avoid secondary issues, right, about um, a bunch of others. Just focus on the, the, the heart of it all. So, yeah, please check out that video. I'll put a link to that video in the description below. Anybody who wants to check that out, my most recent video. I did a great deal of research, and I would stand behind everything I said in that video um, uh, today as well. Number eight, Egg744 says, Any thoughts about ecumenical movement? If my church is in it, should I get out of that church? In Finland, most churches have papers that you are officially in it. Is that biblical? Um, it depends on what you mean by ecumenical, and I'm not familiar with Finland and where you guys stand right now. So in a sense, I am ecumenical. Let me be careful how I say this. In a sense, I'm ecumenical in that I might be part of uh, Calvary Chapel. It's my background. But I consider myself um, part of the global church. 
I'm part of the body of Christ. And I, and I would allow for lots of variation amongst beliefs of those around me. I would never divide on eschatology, right? Unless it's denying actually the, 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 the future coming of Christ, then I, you're denying something that's real central. I am, if someone believes in the death and resurrection of Jesus, if I have a brother who doesn't even believe in an errancy of scripture, I would still consider them my brother, right? I think that that's a mistake, but I wouldn't divide over it. If they have a different view on the rapture than, than, than someone else, I'm, I don't care. Um, if they have a different view on women in leadership, I'm not going to divide over that. These are a whole bunch of things that are, are, are big issues, but I would never divide on them. If they have a congregational-led or elder-led or pastor-led church, I would not divide over those issues. So I'm ecumenical in that sense. But but my my version of mere Christianity, because some people's version of mere Christianity is, is, am I, is too mere, in my opinion. There's not enough Christianity in their mere Christianity. Um, it includes the gospel. And so our salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, apart from works, that is really important to me. And I would I would divide for people who say otherwise, who, who are like, you know, no, man, that's Jesus isn't enough. It's Jesus plus. Then I would I would just say, I'm sorry. I uh, at that point, at that point, you've compromised the gospel. And this is the thing where the Bible tells me to throw down the gauntlet. And if anybody preaches something other than what we preach to you in Galatians, it says, let him be accursed. I'm not, I'm not going to touch that with a 10 foot pole. So yeah, there's that. Now, if it, on the, on the other hand, if I'm, if I see a church that's really going down the road of like, say they're embracing, um, uh, same sex, uh, marriage and ordination of, of, uh, LGBT, uh, clergy, and they are d just making a lot of compromises that I would say this isn't in itself an essential essential view in Christianity. But what it is, is it represents a substantial compromise where now the gospel is being hindered because you're telling people not to repent of things that God says to repent of. Like there are some a lot of issues that will push that um, push that that heart of ecumenicalism that I want to have. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the thing about ecumenical is it has to do with being one church. I want to be one church, right? I can't be one church with people who aren't actually part of the church because they have a false gospel. So I can't be ecumenical with them. Can't give you more details about Finland because I just don't know. Isaac O'Brien says, if Jesus doesn't return until the temple is rebuilt, how is the temple rebuilt when the ark and its contents are gone? Perhaps I have a big misunderstanding of prophecy uh, or the specs for the temple. Um, Isaac, I would say there's a few options here. I'm a futurist, so I do think, could be wrong here, I think that there's going to be a future temple in Jerusalem um, and that that thing will be built. It, now, it might be built shortly before Christ comes or it might be built long before Christ comes. It could be built, destroyed, built again. I don't know. We'll see. God, God knows. But what about the ark? We don't know where the ark is. Well, there's a couple different possibilities. Actually, I'll give you three. One, they do know where the ark is. It's hidden somewhere. There's a lot of rumors going around. There's a, there's a group in Ethiopia. Right now, there are Ethiopians who say they currently have the ark. You could Google it right now. You'll actually see a little picture of this real like hut type building. And they have a, a high priest there. And they say they have the ark. It looks like a really weird group to me and to most of us, I think. They claim they have the ark. Um, I don't think that's probably true. But there's one possibility there. Some people are convinced they have it. They say, well, there was a, an Ethiopian eunuch who was coming back from Jerusalem uh, in Acts. Maybe he had the ark with him. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. So you're just guessing things, making stuff up basically. But um, others would say the ark is hidden somewhere else. Like it's hidden in the tunnels underneath the temple. There are actual tunnels underneath the temple. So they think maybe the Jews have the ark right now and they just have it hidden. 
Okay, so one possibility is the Ark shows up out of wherever it is, and then they just put it in the temple when it's built. Another possibility is they just remake it. They just make a new Ark, right? They, they're doing this, when they rebuild the temple, they're going to be rebuilding everything. They've already made um, a new uh, candle stand, lamp stand, for the temple, like out of gold. It's massive. It's taller than me. I'm six foot. It's much taller than I am. And the thing is absolutely huge. But it's not the original one. They just remade it. They could just remake it, right? They could carve out stone tablets and write the commandments and put them in there if they want. They could take a, a, a rod that would be, you know, a rod that has buds on it um, to make it look like Aaron's rod that budded and put it in there in, a, in memorial. So they could just make it. Or finally, the third option is they just don't have an ark at all. They just don't have one at all. That would be an option as well. I don't know which direction they would go. I'm guessing they would just make a new one. Does that mean it's like valid? Well, not really. I mean, <laughs> um, the, the statements of prophecy about there being a temple doesn't mean this temple is like valid and blessed by God. It just means it exists. And so that gives us a lot more opportunity to see different ways of it happening. The next question here is from Samantha Hot, who says, what happens to animals slash insects when they die? That's a really interesting question, Samantha. I have had three seconds to think about it. I will say this, off the cuff, my first response would be they just stop existing. Um, it's possible that animals or in, in insects have souls but that those souls just don't live on after after they die. That's possible. It's possible that they do live on. And then, especially with insects, that seems to be problematic because the sheer number of insects, if you're going to be bringing them back, like when the new heavens and new earth are made, the, she the sheer number of insects that would inhabit the world would just be a lot if you're bringing them all back. Um, that seems like it would be a problem. But uh, but others would say, well, you know, tough questions are um, plants are alive. Do they have like a soul, like an immaterial type of quality? Does that immaterial thing live on after they die? Um, insects, same question. Animals, same question. And then it gets harder when you get to intelligent animals, like at least as far as animals go, right? When you have like um, chimpanzees, you have dolphins, you have certain intelligent, more intelligent animals, elephants and stuff. And you're like, I wonder, I wonder. And I don't know the answer here. My general first gut reaction is to think that they cease existing. Um, and the only passage of scripture that I think people use, although some people push back on this. Um, I'm trying to remember where it, it, it's in Ecclesiastes. I'm trying to remember where the actual specific verse is. Um, let me see. If, I'm going to see if I can find it for you. Oh, I see. I see my problem. There's a passage in Ecclesiastes that says that the soul of an animal goes back to the dust and, and I, I'm not finding it right now, and that the soul of a man goes back to him who made him. And I'm not perfectly quoting it, I'm sure, but the, the general idea there is that it's like differentiating between the, de the, 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 the soul of an animal that just stops existing, the soul of a human that goes back to God. There's like an eternal thing there. Some people would push back on that. They would say, well, it's a highly poetic book or you're misinterpreting it. Maybe they're right. My current understanding is that that verse gives me the closest thing to an answer on that question. Number 11, Omar Bar says, is there anything Christians should fear apart from God? Um, 
there's nothing we should fear like we fear God, right? But there are things we should fear in other senses. So um, there's a proverb on this that says that the prudent man, uh, something about the prudent person fearing. I wonder if I could find a text in Proverbs that I'm looking for that, that mentions in a very positive sense, the idea of having fear, proper fear about consequences. And um, now in a sense, the fear that we have uh, of earthly problems, consequences of sin, that kind of fear is the fear of God. I do bad things, bad things happen. That is connected to the very fear of God. So you could say, I'm afraid to uh, cheat on my taxes because I'll get caught and I'll get in trouble. Like that could be sort of a fear of God. He put the authority of the government there. The danger with fear is when our fear of something else comes into conflict with our fear of God, where someone's like, stop talking about Jesus or this will happen to you. And then you go, mm, I fear God more. And so you then when there's a conflict between your fear of fill in the blank and your fear and your trust in God, you always pick God. That's the important issue here. But there's a, you know, there's good reasons why you don't like close your eyes and run across the street. Right. That's a healthy fear of getting hit by a car. You could try to say that's like the fear of the Lord. But I mean, it's just like a healthy, proper fear of being, you know, bad things happening. So that, that would be healthy fear. What we don't want is irrational fears, unjustified fears and fears that are in conflict with our fear of the Lord. Those are the, the, the things that I would want to want to avoid. I really should have a scripture here to share with you on this. I'm trying to find. Ah, oh, but. But I don't see it. Yes. Fear evil, um, as in the sense of evil consequences of your ungodly actions. That's a good thing. But all right. Next question. Number 12, Turka Oranzava says, Dear Mike, can you please comment on John 8, 30 through 38? Why was Jesus talking like this to those who believed him? We'd love to hear your insight. Sending thanks from the Czech Republic. How cool is that? I mean, I'm just get excited to hear from someone in uh Czech Republic. So John 8, 30, let's just read the whole chapter, the whole chapter, the whole verse set of nine verses that he gave us here. And our, the question we're going to ask is why, why, if we can, why did Jesus talk like this to people who believed him? And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, that's why the question says, yeah, those who believe, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father and you do what you have heard from your father. Yeah, that's a really good question because this, especially this last part, he's like, you're trying to kill me all this. How do we explain this if there are people who are believing him? Um, well, the very next thing they say is, Abraham's our father. Jesus said, I'm going to read on a bit. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham did the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This was, this is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works of your, that your father did. Then they, then they insult Jesus. 
we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God, maybe implying that they think Jesus was born of sexual immorality because they don't believe the story. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot uh, hear. Basically, I'm going to, I could keep reading because it's a long passage, but they're going to, he continues to rebuke them and explains why they're rebelling against him. He finally claims that, that before Abraham was, I am, which is like in John 8, 58, right? Which is like him saying, I'm, I'm God. Uh, He's making a claim to deity here. And then in verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at him. So they do try to kill him. His prediction comes true. He's like, you're trying to kill me. So here's the question relating to their belief, right? A few things. One, what was their belief like salvific? In which case they just lost it moments later, picked up stones, tried to kill him. Or perhaps their belief was, was they believed him, but not salvifically. There was some lesser sense in which they believed him. So when we look at John 8, 30 to try to, look at this. Many believed in him as he's saying these things. And he says to the Jews who had believed in him, um, or had believed him. Um, there's, you know, normally you would take this belief language to be a salvific thing, but he doesn't suggest here that they're losing salvation. They go from believing to not believing. He's just, he's accusing them of, of not trusting him the whole way through his correspondence. So then, yeah, this is a confusing passage. I think that my, my thought is that this is not like they're believing him, but not believing in him, but not, um, not salvifically. I don't know if I can sustain that. I think maybe I'd want to study this passage more carefully because belief, especially in the gospel of John, right? As many as believed in him, he gave them the right to become sons of God. This is, this is the path of salvation that John speaks of specifically. It's belief, belief, belief. So it's very interesting that he says that to them. Uh, finally, another thing you could say is Jesus is talking to not just a, maybe this is the best answer. He's not talking to a monolithic crowd. Yes, he's talking to those who believe in him, but there are a a wider audience there. It's not as though everyone listening is believing in him. So one option is it's not salvific belief. It's just like a partial belief. Um, They're they're thinking he he looks legit and then they find out more about what he's claiming and they reject him, which is because they were always rejecting, just didn't know enough to realize they were gonna reject him. The other option is, um, it says he was speaking to those who believed him. He wants them to be the witnesses as he's talking to the whole crowd of Jews who are in fact going to reject him, which would be consistent with earlier passages in John that suggest that the majority do not receive him. That's another theme we see in the gospels, but in John in particular, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So yeah, maybe he's talking to the believers, right? But also to the wider audience who are the ones that end up rejecting him. What's the right answer? I think I want to sit on that for a bit. Those are just some thoughts. <laughs> Austin Hallman says, what does the Bible say about modesty in clothing? Are there certain parts of our body that we cannot show? Or is it just a heart issue? If the uniform for a sport is a bikini, should we avoid that? Okay, Austin, uh, I'm going to give you my honest opinions here, but I can't separate myself from my culture. Okay, I can't separate myself from my upbringing and from my own perspectives. So I know that in some cultures, there's, they're rare, but there are some cultures where, where women don't even wear tops, right? Now, generally speaking, when missionaries hit those cultures, that habit usually changes and they end up wearing tops, you know? 
Um, I know the the Bible's very high on modesty. There's scripture about modesty. Uh, the Old Testament, it, it even just uses the phrase uncovering nakedness as a reference to inappropriate sexual behaviors so that it's a euphemism, but still it's like considered a big deal, right? A big deal that, that even to just look upon nakedness, Adam and Eve, they covered the, their bodies. They covered their bodies as soon as they ate of the tree. They covered themselves. God then makes them coverings. The New Testament encourages us again to have modesty, modesty, modesty. I will say this, whatever culture you live in, if your culture um, is not driven by, uh, by, by Christian commitments, then your culture is going to be more immodest than you as a Christian should be. That I think we can expect because it's the nature of the culture. And there's a reason why the New Testament has to command Christians to like, you know, be modest, be modest, be modest. Um, at the same time, I don't want to go overboard and I don't want to tell like women, you're the reason men are lusting. Like men are driven away, driven towards lust because of the desires in their own hearts, right? It, it's easy to project it onto a woman. It's easy for a man to look at a, a, a beautiful woman and think she is 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 causing me to struggle and have problems here and yet she's doing nothing wrong it's just you okay you're the problem <laughs> um but there's also a, way too much immoral behaviors and and clothings and stuff like that that are going on in our culture even today um clothing is absolutely immodest in many many ways especially as a teen like i just didn't go to the beach like i'm not gonna go because i'm gonna struggle i know if i go there and that's wisdom, I think, for a lot of guys. So can I make rules about how much neck can show, how much arm or shoulder can show, or or if, you know, how low a blouse can be or how high a skirt can be? I don't know how to make those rules for everybody. I'm just going to say it's probably more modest than what your gut is telling you. <laughs> and that a, a sport that requires wearing bikinis is probably has inherent, I'll be honest, inherent immorality built into it. I do think so. I, I think that's inherently immoral built into it. I think that like women in tennis, for instance, are, I believe, required to wear these or at least have been in the past, maybe it's changing, required to wear these these outfits because they think it will increase the numbers of attendance. And they're right, it will. You know, the, the phrase they say is sex sells. It it does. It's successful, but it's immoral. Um, so yeah, are there certain body parts we can't show? Obviously, our reproductive organs would be obviously on that list of things you cannot show in public, right? But how close to that line can you get? I would say I'd rather know that I'm modest and honoring Christ in that modesty. That, that'd be the number one concern. Um, I think our culture has gotten to a point where we actually think that women wearing immodest clothing equals empowerment and independence. And I think it's like, it's like the biggest joke that has been played on women. <laughs> like you wearing these clothes is your empowerment and independence. It's just, it's, it's like this weird backwards inside out thinking um, so that it would encourage them to think that someone suggesting that, that a woman should be modest is oppressive to women. Uh, now men should too, men should too. Guys, guys, oh man, guys are getting worse and worse and worse about this stuff. And I don't know. I'll move on. I'm just rambling now. Spazzy Jazzy has a question. She asks, Hi, Mike. How are you doing? Could you run through an explanation of the armor of God? 
Oh, um, there are probably a lot of different ways to explain the armor of God, but this is in Ephesians. We, we read about the armor of God. It's one of the, towards the end of the book, um, he suggests that we need to put on the full armor of God and he lists Paul under the inspiration of the spirit lists specific items of armor that would have been very familiar to the people of the day, right? They know the armor of God. Uh, they know the armor of people. Paul's using that as an analogy. We're a little disconnected from that. Because of fighting movies, we kind of understand armor, but we don't really use it too much. So finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against uh, the authorities, against the cosmic powers. And, and here's an interesting study. Try to figure out what each of those are. The rulers, the authorities, and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, and now he gives a list, having fastened on the belt of truth. Um, so truth would would could refer to personal sincerity and integrity, that you are, you are not an insincere person, you are genuine. First thing you are as a Christian is you're genuine. You put on that belt. I'm a genuine believer. Um, so this could be truthfulness that I maintain in my life, consistency, consistent living, genuine faith. Um, it could also be putting on belief in the truth of Christ, that I'm I'm choosing to trust what God has revealed and I'm holding to my Christian worldview, my Christian faith strongly. I'm holding that truth, th those beliefs. So that, that could be the belt of truth. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness, um, I I know there's a discussion on this. The breastplate of righteousness, some think, okay, well, maybe it's my behavior of righteousness or maybe it is Christ's righteousness. Like I put on that breastplate of, of um, it's Jesus's righteousness that's on me and it protects me to know that I'm not righteous, he is. I lean towards thinking the other thing that putting on the breastplate of righteousness, that this is, this is my behavior as a Christian, that I walk righteously. I think righteousness guards you living rightly. Now I, I know you're not perfect. I'm not perfect, but living, um, holy lives as a Christian, it protects you in so many ways from spiritual attack. How many of you have gone through seasons of doubt? And you know, this where the whole season of doubt was connected to the guilt of sin, where it's like, I feel bad about this sin. I've been committing this sin. And now I'm doubting the truth of Christianity. But that breastplate of righteousness, that that living a right life before the Lord, consistent with your faith, that thing protects you. It protects you. It's essential. If, In fact, I would say if you are struggling with doubt and you're also struggling with sin, deal with the sin that might deal with the doubt too. It's pretty crazy how consistent that is because oftentimes doubt isn't about facts. It's about spiritual battles that you're experiencing. Verse 15, uh, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness of the uh, given by the gospel of peace. So just like the breastplate of righteousness protects you against like onslaughts and attacks. It's, it's like your biggest protection item. So the shoes are about where you go. You travel, right? And shoes do a couple things. One, they protect you from your feet getting damaged by the road. This could be like as we're living in the world, we're, we're, we're making sure that our relationships are about sharing the gospel. Right? We, we have the gospel of peace. We're, we're evangelizers. We're all of us wanting people to know Christ. We're not hiding our Christianity. We're, we're trying to tell other people about the Lord. We want them to get saved. We want them to put their faith in Jesus and be forgiven of their sins and enter into a relationship with God. So that attitude that my relationship with Christians is fellowship and edification, my relationship with the world is evangelism, um, that attitude protects us as well. This is, this is something that keeps us from 
compromises in our lives where we spiritually fail and fall because we don't have evangelism relationships. We're like, well, I'm building friendship, building friendship. I'm just doing life with people. And there's a place for that. I fully agree with you there. But how many of us have seen people say things like that because they just will never preach the gospel to anybody? And they feel very self-righteous. It's funny how righteous people can feel about never sharing the gospel with anybody. Um, I would say it's part of the armor of God for a reason. Have the gospel in your witness at the world. It keeps your feet clean from the things of the world. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Um, the enemy, his flaming darts, uh, you can connect this with First Peter, which says that um, we go through fiery trials in our lives and that's that the trial causes the testing of our faith and the testing of our faith produces patience and patience it leads to all these things uh, patient long suffering good um, good character is the final thing and hope sorry character and hope the point there if you don't know the passage the point there is the idea that, that you go through trials whether that's persecution of the enemy or if it's like the kind of doubt and um, internal turmoil that I think can be caused by spiritual warfare that there was the, the thing that helps you overcome this is your confident faith in Christ. This is not faith without evidence. No, no. Faith without evidence is not something we're actually talking about here. It's rather just, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I've got the reasons to believe, but I'm going to choose to trust you. So hold up that shield of faith. And as I be, am persecuted or am going through hard times, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be the thing that helps quench the fiery darts of the evil one. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, the reason why I think the breastplate of, breastplate of righteousness is our behavior is because the helmet of salvation is the thing where it's like, here, it protects your head. You're, you know, you get a head blow, you're dead. You know, this is, this is, this is my salvation. I'm always reminding myself that my salvation comes from Christ. My salvation is to, is to lift my head upward, to be thinking about eternity, to be de delighting in the goodness of God and remember that I am his and I'm his forever. And it's that simple, like Christianity 101 stuff that I never graduate beyond the simple gospel. Jesus saved me, my past, it's been wiped away and forgiven. My my future is secure in Christ. That righteousness keeps me strong, keeps me healthy, my, my lived out holiness in this world, but it's his gift of salvation is, this, is the foundation of all of it. So take that helmet of salvation, remind yourself of that. And the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And it's the one offensive tool in the armor of God. So you're, you're fully, you know, buckled up and ready to go. And you have one weapon. It's the sword of the spirit. Here, here's my sword of the spirit. And you got the word of God. This, um, uh, to them, the word of God could be referring to simply the gospel itself. It could be a reference to scripture, to all of scripture. That's quite possible as well. Um, I think it would be inclusive of all of those things. And so it's the message of the gospel, but it's also just all of scripture. The The word of God is the thing that's going to give me the ability to have discernment, the ability to have promises that I can claim, truths that I can hold on to, direction for my life, correction and rebuke. All of that stuff is going to be there. Um, I, need, I need the word of God and... Then finally, he says, praying at all times in the spirit. He doesn't have an item of the armor to talk about that, but he mentions it. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So there's the armor of God. A quick rundown through the armor of God. Um, very tempting to do like a series where you just do one piece of armor a week. <laughs> but uh, anyway, there you go, spazzy jazzy. The, br the brunette... I think it's brunette family says honest question and a little bit funny does psalm 121 6 literally mean that god can protect you from being sunburnt i want to not wear sunblock 
but don't want to ruin my skin if I'm wrong. <laughs> I get a kick out of this question. Let's look at the psalm together. Is this the sunblock psalm? Is this SPF instead of Psalm PS 121? Is it SPF 121? That's the question. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. All right, let's back up and read the whole psalm. It's pretty short. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Um, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Uh, oftentimes you, you lift your eyes to the hills because hills are protecting you. Hills are also surrounding you. If you have hills around you, especially if you're in Jerusalem, you have hills around you. But the hills are protection against armies and stuff. But the person, he lifts his eyes up to the hills, but he, he doesn't find his help in the hills. The hills aren't the things that are protecting him. It's the Lord who protects him. So he goes, where's my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither sleep, uh, neither slumber nor sleep. This is a promise to Israel. Not that there's no lesson we can learn for ourselves, but this psalm is directed to Israel. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. He will, uh, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. And that's, that's the whole of the psalm. So it's basically just a protection psalm for Israel. The sun not striking by day or the moon by night could be a reference to things like drought. They're probably not re referencing sunburn. Drought or um, other uh, things like uh, the destruction of their crops because of heat waves, that sort of thing. Um, the moon by night, not really sure what the moon striking you by night. Maybe there's another correspondence here there's something else that's going on here that's more of a spiritual reality that it's talking about i guess i should look into that more i do not think this is an spf psalm um i think that this is probably nothing about you having permission to not wear sunblock i strongly encourage you wear sunblock um you know i, I got skin cancer in my family I'll, I'll be wearing some sunblock and I, I i think you should do the same so i'm sorry you don't like it i understand i hate sunblock too but yeah the sun will still burn you um, Philagape number 16 says, why do people go to hell? Is it penalty for sins or not believing in Jesus? Some say everyone's sins are forgiven, but that doesn't seem to square with Ephesians 5, 5 through 6 and Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Here's the question. Am I going to hell because I committed sins or because I didn't believe in Jesus? I have often heard people say the only sin is not believing in Jesus. And there's a sense in which I can understand why they say that, but I would not say that. Not with those words, not in that context. And the reason is because the scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So the initial state of mankind, well, let me give you an analogy. A person falls into a pit because they're being a dummy and they're jumping around a pit and they're acting like a fool and they fall in. You would say that the reason they fell into the pit is because of their foolishness, right? Then you lower down a ladder and you tell them, get that ladder, climb up the ladder. It's your only way out. Get on the ladder. And they say, I don't want the ladder. And then you leave, you pick the ladder back up, you walk away. And then someone asks you, why is your friend in the pit? And you have two choices. You could say he's in the pit because of his foolishness, his sin, or he's in the pit because he rejected the ladder, which would be Jesus, right? The one who would rescue us from it. I think we should just preserve the difference. Sin is the thing that gets us into the pit. We'll call that hell or condemnation. Jesus is the thing that gets us out. 
The ladder didn't put your friend in the pit, but the rejection of the ladder kept him there. Sin, it gives us condemnation. Jesus gives us salvation. If you say it wrong, you make it sound like Jesus condemns us, right? I'm condemned for not believing in Jesus. Wait a minute. You were condemned before you didn't believe in Jesus, but you stayed condemned because you didn't believe in Jesus. And I think that John makes it even more clear to now I can give you a scripture to support all this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world, that, uh, the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Now, this is the, the wording's interesting. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're already condemned. Like previously, before you didn't believe, you were already condemned. And if you don't believe, you're already, in other words, you're staying in the pit. You fell in there with your sin. You're staying in there because you didn't believe. I think that that's um, how it is. So yeah, I would say uh, people don't go to hell because they don't believe in Jesus. They go to hell because of their sin. They don't get saved from it because of not believing in Jesus. Mackenzie McEwen says this, in one of your Q&As, you shared your thoughts on Jesus calling. I was wondering if it's okay for someone to get quiet and try to hear God and write it down for just themselves. Is that wrong? Not in principle. Let me say this, Mackenzie, not in principle. It's not wrong to sit down, have a pen or something and be like, Lord, I just pray you show me something right now. But here's the scary part. What if you just start writing down your own thoughts and you think it's the Lord? So do you have a way of verifying that this is God and not you? I mean, it's not generally the way the Lord speaks to us. I once had a conversation with a high school student who was talking to me about how God was speaking to him and he was really into confirmation. Now, I'm open to that. I'm open to God using something in my life to confirm something. But for him, it was more like, um, where's Waldo? You know, it was like looking for confirmation everywhere, every day, every every hour or two he's like that's the lord that's the lord that's the lord and it looked like he was just making stuff up and i felt like this made his life a little unstable and i think it did um so i pulled him aside i was like hey let me ask you how does god speak to us and he goes oh like dreams i was like okay and he says like so dreams uh prophecy someone else can have a prophecy um yeah he goes uh confirmation i go yeah what else what else what else and he goes um visions and i go okay sure what else how else does god speak to us and he runs out of things and i'm like there's nothing else there's no other way god speaks to us and he's like i don't know i can't i can't think of anything else and I go, there's nothing else no other way that god might communicate to us and he goes i i can't think of one and i said well how about the bible <laughs> and then he goes oh yeah that <laughs> and that's my fear that's my fear is that that moment of sitting in quiet and writing that I may just be writing my thoughts and not the Lord's and that that can replace my reading of his word, right? My taking up that sword of the spirit. That's a real concern. I think if God wants to speak to me, he can make it very clear that it's him. I'm not going to look for hints and whispers. I know people are like the still small voice. He whispers. That's, that's not really what we're supposed to get out of the passage. Like, yeah, there, there's a point that there was a still small voice. This doesn't mean that God hints at you and you have to decipher these complicated riddles in your life. Like, like uh, my thought is I'm no good at that. Lord, if you want to speak to me, you're going to have to make it clear because I'm too scared of making stuff up to guess and call it the Lord. And that would be my encouragement to you as well. Number 18. 
Henry Avery's Gravery says, you mentioned in an early video, earlier video that you do not believe one goes directly to hell once dead. Can you elaborate on that? So my understanding currently, and I'm open to revising myself on this because this is one of the topics I want to like dig into one of these days. It's probably a couple years down the road, um, but really dig into it. But my understanding is that that there's a difference between Hades and hell in scripture. Hades, and, and not all translations preserve these two different terms, but in the Greek, you're going to have these different terms. Hades, um, and, and hell, you'll have a couple different words for these different things. Uh, there's actually like three, three different terms you, you'll need to know. But Hades is like this, this location when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. Um, if that story is of a real thing that's going on uh, and not just a parable, or, or even if it's a parable, but it describes real places, you have Abraham's bosom, which is like a, a holding place, not in heaven, a holding place that's for the saved, that's, they're being comforted by Abraham. They're, they're gathered to Abraham. That's the phrase Abraham's bosom. It's not meant to be weird. It's just weird in our modern English. And then you have the place the rich man went where he's suffering, but it's not hell. Hell is a future thing we read about in Revelation. After Jesus uh, comes back, there's a thousand year reign. After the thousand year reign, Satan is released. Then there's the final judgment. Then people are cast into hell. Until then, they're in a temporary holding place. Now, I would consider it like the difference between jail and prison. If you get arrested by the police right now, you are not taken directly to prison. They take you to the local police jail. And then if you are then sentenced through whatever process to prison, you will eventually make it to a permanent prison. If you're if you're in, at least for California, if you're in jail for a year or longer, I think this is probably the whole country. But if you're a sentence, well, maybe this may have changed. They've been changing things recently. But it used to be that if you had a year long sentence or more, you would go to prison, not jail. Hades is more like jail. Hell is more like prison. It's it's the more permanent thing. That'd be my understanding of it, which which is open to revision. But you're asking what my opinion is. Um, that's it. John Johnny Quick says, given the fact that evolution occurs is observable and is supported by a vast body of scientific evidence, earning it the highest degree of scientific support. How do you interpret Genesis one and two? Well, Johnny Quick. Um, I don't interpret Genesis 1 and 2 based on the fact that blah, 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 outside the Bible, okay? Whatever it is, let's suppose evolution is totally, by that we mean common descent, abiogenesis from Big Bang, right, until right now, everything happened naturalistically. Let's suppose that that's the case. God maybe did the Big Bang and that everything happened naturalistically. That doesn't mean that I am going to force Genesis to fit that. My view is this, and I, and I, I've not done my, all my homework on this yet. This is again, a project for one of these days. I've done some of the work and it, it's just going to be a major project. That's going to take hundreds of hours of time. And I'm, I, I'd like to get into it in the future, but I want to separate the science issue and just, just put it on the bench. And I want to look at Genesis and ask these questions. What genre of literature is Genesis one, two, three, four, all the way up through 11? What genre or genres is this section of Genesis? That's one ma major question. Number two, what are the different possible explanations to understand what Genesis is saying and what that would mean for its real world application? There are various views, right? There's the, there's the gap theory. There's the, the day age theory. There is the, um, the seven day, you know, 24 hour young earth creationist theory. There is the progressive creation view. There is, um, Walton's view, John Walton's view, um, that I know you guys are familiar a lot of you with inspiring philosophy. He leans towards Walton's view. 
Um, I think Michael Heiser has similar views to that. There's William Lane Craig's view, which is like um, uh, the term he uses is mytho history. I hate the term. It's really, it's misleading because it doesn't mean myth in the sense you're thinking. But it does refer to Genesis then as this archetypal language. And he tries to build a case that this genre fits what Genesis is, that there's these other writings that we have in the ancient Near East that fit that genre and establish it as a reality. It has elasticity and flexibility, and there's all these terms. Anyway, it's complicated. I don't know what my answer to that is, but I do know this, Johnny, is that I don't base my understanding of Genesis on my understanding of science because that's not how you study texts. Like, you don't study any text like that. I want to just look at Genesis and understand it. Um, yeah, that's that's the approach I would take. So... I wish I had more for you guys on that. I know this is a huge, huge issue and the interpretation of Genesis is hugely important. Because it's so important is why I'm not going to just throw down my gauntlet on a view that I'm not certain of. So I still have some question marks about that. A lot of question marks. More questions than I used to have. I used to have a very staunch young earth creationist perspective of Genesis. I have grown to question that not because of science, but because of the questions of genre and the questions of the consistency of that perspective. And I'm now on the fence. And um, even that would cause a lot of people to get mad at me right now. And that's okay. Maybe you should be. Maybe I'm, I'm totally blowing it somehow. But, um, but it has nothing to do with science and everything to do with hermeneutics. Um, number 20, Dora says, I have ADHD. And while looking for a Christian perspective, I came across a website that calls mental illness a myth and attributes any abnormality in thinking to the influence of the devil. It also says ADHD is a behavioral problem that happens because parents refuse or don't know how to discipline their children and that the root of all disorders is some type of sin that is being committed and that medications are used as an excuse for continuing to engage in the sinful behavior. Thoughts? Dora, I think that that's silly. I think there's two extremes and I would avoid both. One extreme you just described, you found a website that says like, Everything that, that has, you know, reflects in personality issues or behavioral problems is just purely sin-based. Okay, that's one perspective. I think that that's silly. I think that's silly. On the other hand, the other extreme perspective is to just naturalize everything, right? Like every disorder, every, every behavioral issue is just a chemical imbalance. That's all it is. And I'm going to say, look, as a Christian with my worldview... I have both of these as explanations, both. And I'm going to take case by case and try to find the truth. I can be open to this is purely caused by chemicals. I could say it's demonic or it's sin, or I could say it's both. Maybe the chemicals led towards the sin and the sin led towards more problems with chemicals. I think that that's possible too. And so I'm going to do all that. But one thing I will preserve, when a, when a person sins, this is a bit strong biblical principle, it's their fault. It's not someone else's fault. When I sin, it's my fault. Now, someone else may have led to it or something else may have triggered it in, 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 or fed into it. And then that person has their own responsibility. But, but the fact that I yielded to it, I also have my responsibility. So if, if let's say ADHD is like a legit thing, then my counsel to someone who has ADHD is you may have a hard time paying attention, but it doesn't mean you have an excuse to sin. That's really important that we realize that. Right, so I have a terrible memory. You might not think this is true about me. <laughs> Ask my wife. I have a horrible memory. And what this means is that I have to work even harder because my memory is bad. And so I have to take notes on things. 
I have to like restudy content. I've taught this two years ago and I had it all in my head at the time. And now I got to like start over. Sorry, my allergies. I'm not crying. I'm not sad. I promise. Um, my allergies, which, which I blame on, um, sin because I wouldn't even have allergies if I wasn't such a sinner, but my, um, my studies, I'll do these in elaborate studies going through lots of details like marriage and divorce, you know, hundreds of hours of research. But if I wanted to teach that again from scratch, I would have to go sit down for hours and hours and hours and hours to refresh myself on it. It just doesn't stick in my head as well as it should. So what, what does that mean? Does that mean I have an excuse to just do poorly because I can't remember content? It just means I have to study harder. ADHD means you got to work harder at things. It doesn't mean you have an excuse to shirk off responsibilities. That's the only thing I would encourage people with. Don't make your issues an uh, excuse for sin. Be open to sin causing something, chemical imbalances causing something. I don't think we should just default to one or the other. We should be open to all of those explanations. Those are my two my two cents, you guys. Look, Friday Q&A, um, inevitably, me not knowing what questions you'll ask, it ends up being a mixture of what's clearly scriptural and what is my opinion. My opinion is that we shouldn't, say it's always sin or always chemicals. That's my opinion. What's clearly scriptural is that you never have to sin because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. So even if you have disabilities that make you unable to do lots of things, they won't force you to sin. So you can't blame your sin on your disability. You can just say, I don't have the ability to do that, but I still can honor God in my situation. That's the biblical strong principle. Hopefully you can hear the distinctions between some of my opinions and the clear teachings of scripture here. And in that you might find aid aid and help and room for even disagreement. All right, that's it. I will see you guys Monday. I'm going to be talking about more in time stuff for a couple more um, of the Monday studies. This Monday, we're getting into it. Talking about the return of Jesus. What is it going to look like? What is him coming on the clouds? What is the gathering of the elect? Some tough questions we're going to be tackling this week. Other than that, Lord bless you guys. Keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And above above all else, really focus on, I just encourage you, focus on your relationship with Jesus, your relationship with the Lord, your walk with him being pure and right. And that's like the first peg in your life that has to be right is to be abiding in Christ. And then from the outgrowth of that work and all the other issues you got going on. Take care. <laughs>